Good morning. My name is Tim, and I'm on staff here. I get to I get to teach now and again, and um, have fun doing it. Uh, we are in a series. We're, well, we're in the season uh, called Advent. Basically, uh, throughout Christian history, followers of Jesus. They've considered uh, the, the, the coming of God's Son down to earth as a, as a human child such a big deal that they want to take time, the, the Sundays before that, and four Sundays traditionally, to prepare their hearts again to remember um, the coming of God uh, on earth. And so that's what this Advent time is. And so we're in the second Sunday of Advent, preparing our hearts um, to again remember and celebrate uh, the coming of God's Son on earth in Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're doing, um, we're talking... The, the question that we're asking is, who is this Jesus? If, if, if this, this Christmas celebrates the coming of God to heal human hearts, if it, com- if, if it celebrates the coming of God to meet the deep longings of the human experience, well then, who is this Jesus? How does this Jesus meet those longings? How does Jesus heal these hearts? And so we're going to, this, this Advent season, we're looking at this question, who is this Jesus? What was he like? What did he claim? What did he do? So that is, that's what we're doing uh, this month. So, uh, but before we kind of get into the text this morning, uh, I want to tell you a little about my week this this past week. So Friday, December 5th, was my birthday. Uh, Celebrate my birthday. It was a fun day. Yep, I know. Made it it around the sun again. Thank you for the congratulations. Um, And uh, celebrated. Got to do some fun things. Went out to dinner with my wife. Um, Got to play with my girls, dance with my girls. Uh, what if, if, you know, so Friday was this kind of this day of celebration and joy. And for me, the, if, if I had to paint a picture, what does joy look like? It is dancing with one of my daughters. It's a fire in the fireplace, music on the stereo, and us just, me holding one of them and dancing around the living room. That is joy to me. And, we'll, you know, we'll dance around, and then I'll start tickling them. And then they'll say, they'll say Daddy, I just peed on you. And then it's... <laughs> That's usually, then it ends, then, you know, but, but that's, you know, so uh, Friday was, it was a day, it was joy, it was a day of joy. Uh, Thursday, December 4th, the day before, for me, was a day of remembering sorrow. Uh, 18 years ago, this past Thursday, I was a junior in high school, and I had a good friend, um, George, uh, who had a heart valve. Uh, it was, he was born with it facing the wrong direction, undetectable, junior in high school, um, he had a heart attack and died. And, uh, and I found myself reflecting on that again uh, this past Thursday. And, uh, and it, if, you, if you have ever been to the funeral of a student, the funeral of a kid, you know that there's this sense when you're there, this sense that this is not how life is meant to be. This is not how the world is meant to be. And so that was... For me, it was a day of remembering sorrow, um, a day of remembering joy, a day of experiencing joy, a day of remembering sorrow. And this is, I mean, these are our lives, yeah? Our lives are these mixtures of real joy and real sorrow. That is how we, I mean, I even wonder, we could probably go around this morning, I could say, and um, where, where is your joy today? And I bet you have real genuine joy in your life this morning. We could ask, where is your sorrow either today or what sorrows do you remember today? And my guess is there are heartbreaking stories of sorrow in this room as well. But as, I, um, as we get into this uh, talk this morning, I guess a question for us to consider. Do our joys, do our sorrows, 
do they have, do they, do they have meaning? Do they have significance? Is there, is there some meaning or significance? Is there some, something to them beyond just what we invent for them? Do they matter in any real way in this universe? I've been, uh, I've been rereading a book uh, this fall uh, called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Reading through it, and um, Dawkins, he talks about, among other things, one of the things uh, he talks about is uh, the, the, our human experiences of things like compassion and empathy and altruism. He talks about, um, he talks about this, the love that we have uh, in families and the joy we experience. And, and Dawkins is an atheist, um, and he, he, says, uh, he says, these experiences are evolutionary mistakes. Darwinian misfirings. Is that true? Is me, the joy I experienced with dancing with my daughter, is that just the, the kind of the remnant of, of the, uh, the Darwinian advantage of kinship loyalty? Is my friend's death, is that natural selection just working its way out? 10,000 10, years from now, will, will those things, that joy and that sorrow, will they have any lasting meaning and significance or will they just be Footnotes of history. And I'm not, even, I'm not saying that God couldn't even, he couldn't work through natural selection or something like that. I'm just saying at a, on an ultimate, final, explanatory level, do our joys and sorrows, do they have any lasting, real, objective meaning to them? And if you say, yes, they do, why do you believe that? Because I think there's some of us uh, in, in our world today that might say something like, yeah, joy, yeah, we might believe something in like a life force or the power of love. And have this Hollywood sense of, yeah, love is real. And if so, why? Why would you say differently? I want to look at an account from the life of Jesus this morning. An account where Jesus deals with joy. And he speaks about joy. And he speaks about sorrow. And Jesus believes that our joys and sorrows, yes, are deeply meaningful. Deeply significant. And in fact, he says that our joys and sorrows make sense as they get into his story. And I look at this account from his life this morning to see what he might speak into our joys and our sorrows. So, if you, uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 1. Or you're welcome to follow along. The words will also be on the screen above. So John is, uh, it's after Luke and before the book of Acts. It's pretty far right in your Bibles if you're looking for it there. So John chapter 2. This is, how, uh, this is how the account begins. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So uh, we have a picture. This is Cana. There you go. You see, the, you see the yellow arrow there? It's kind of hard to tell, but there's a knoll or a hill uh, in front of the big hill in the distance. That's Cana. It's um, kind of on the edge of this large valley. Wheat and barley is grown there today. Probably was grown there back then today. So Cana is this rural village in Galilee. And uh, you can just leave that image up there for a bit. Um, Cana, uh, they, they, they're having this wedding there. And weddings back then were huge deals. They were, they were huge celebrations. So... Um, uh, a wedding, a wedding feast that would have gone on for like seven days. 
I mean, they, not the ceremony, because that probably wouldn't have been fun. But, um, but the, set, the, the, the reception, the party afterwards, seven days. And the, um, your, all your extended family from all the different areas around there would be invited. Probably the whole village was invited. It was this huge celebration. And for, I mean, you have to imagine in, the, in, the, in ancient Israel, in the ancient world, I mean, you're, it's a hard life back then. There's no social security. There's no antibiotics. Lifespans are short. And so for the average person, the commoner, a wedding feast was the chief celebration of life. And what, what me dancing with my daughters is, wedding feasts were back then, it was, this, it was this image, this is what joy is. Wedding feast. Now, Jesus, the people that he came from, um, they, believed, uh, they believed something about the universe. They believed that joy and sorrow, like we were talking about, had deep meaning in this world. They believed uh, that there was a, the ultimate reality was a personal God. And this personal God had made people for joy. This personal God intended to fill hearts that trust him, intended to fill this universe with joy in the end. And they believed that this personal God would one day put an end to sorrow and evil and death. And so when they, when, they, when they thought about this, that in the end of history, this personal God, he was going to fill the universe with joy and put an end to sorrow and death. They, and, and they looked around at the world. What image did they pull on to describe what the end would be like? A wedding feast. Because that was the chief celebration. They said, what is the end going to be like? What's it going to be like when God makes all the sad things come untrue? What's it going to be like when he fills this universe with joy? It's going to be like the ultimate wedding feast. And so... Uh, one of Jesus' people, um, th- actually is Isaiah writing seven centuries uh, before Jesus, he says it this way. Listen to the language um, that Isaiah uses. This is describing the end of history. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So when, when, uh, when these people, the people that Jesus came from, when they thought about the end of history, they believed that joy and sorrow did have objective meanings, that sorrow was an intruder, that God was going to do something about it. And the image they said, it's going to be like a wedding feast in the end. And so when we're coming to this account in the book of John about Jesus at a wedding feast, we need to understand this is a symbolically loaded situation. There very well may be more going on here than meets the eye. So let's continue on. Uh, Let's continue on in the story here. This is what happens next. Verse 3. When the wine was gone, so they run out of wine. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So uh, ancient rural society, highly religious. It's what you would call like an honor-shame culture. Do you think running out of wine at this feast was a little deal or a big deal? Big deal, right? Very dishonoring to the couple, to their families. And so Jesus' mom, Mary, sees this and she wants to do something about it. And we don't know if she was expecting Jesus to do a miracle or just wanting him to run out to the wine store. What she was wanting. But she's kind of saying, hey, Jesus, let's, let's help him out. Get him a wedding gift. Help him out here. And this is Jesus' reaction to her. 
He says, verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> Sensitive. <laughs> My hour has not yet come. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, woman, it does, it strikes our ears, our ears as a bit rude. Um, but scholars will say it's, it's, it's a strong term, but it's not disrespectful. It's more of a kind of a distancing term. So he says, but then he has this phrase, my hour has not yet come. And it, it's important to understand, for Jesus in the book of John, the word hour means something specific. It's not just a general, my time. It means something specific. I want to uh, look at John 13, 1, where he uses this term again. I, do we have a slide for this? Yeah, here we go. This, the term hour pops up again here. It was um, John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour, same word, had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So in the book of John, um, hour for Jesus means death. It means crucifixion. It's death. And so, so basically, this is what happens. His mom comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, um, this is really it's an embarrassing situation. The newlyweds are running out of wine. Hey, could you get some wine somehow for him? Help him out. And he says, Why do you involve me? It's not my time to die. Which is an odd response, pretty intense response. I was just asking for wine. I was just, what? Yeah. So what, what is going on here? I believe it's something like this. That um, in Jesus' response, he in some ways is thinking at a whole different level than his mom is. His mom is thinking about this one wedding in the year 27 AD in this rural village of Cana. But I think Jesus has a distant look in his eye at this point. I think Jesus is thinking in the terms of Isaiah. He's thinking, yes, I have come to bring a wedding feast. I have come to bring a celebration. I have come to fill this universe with my joy. But mom, you got to understand what it's going to take to get there. Because Isaiah says, to get there, someone's going to have to swallow death. All this death and evil bouncing around the world, someone is going to have to swallow that, take that into themselves and put it away. And I believe Jesus is thinking, I am that someone. I have come to swallow death and evil and sin and take it to the grave and leave it there. Sometimes, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking to people today, uh, I say, who is Jesus? Um, I think a, a common response is that Jesus was a, a great religious teacher. He was a good man, kind of like, uh, like Buddha or other religious prophets throughout the ages. He was a good man. And um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you look at the evidence of what he said and did that you can actually say he was only a good man, a good religious teacher. Here he is at the beginning of his kind of beginning of his ministry, the beginning of his saying and doing things in the world. And, uh, and here he is, and he is claiming that he is, he is God on earth. He is the one who's going to bring the, the cosmic feast, the cosmic banquet to all the universe. Here he is. He is claiming years ahead of time that he is going to die, and not just die, but that his death will somehow fundamentally alter things in reality. 
that his death will somehow secure the promise of this, this time of joy at the end of history. He's claiming this. And I think you can, you can look at that and you can say, I don't believe that. He's crazy. You could say he's a liar. You could say he's just wrong. But it's not the kind of thing a good, just an ordinary good man, a good religious man claims. He's putting himself at the center of the universe. What do we do with that? But, but uh, his mom at this point, Jesus' mom, of course, um, she is not thinking. She's not seeing all these things. She is simply seeing a young couple in trouble and wanting her son to help out. So this is what, this is what happens next. This is what she says. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she puts the ball back in his court. It's up to you, Jesus. You do whatever you want to do with this. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, they found, um, they found these kinds of jars. In 1969, they were doing some excavations in the old city in Jerusalem. And uh, they, dug up, uh, they dug up a number of them. Here's an image of two of them. You can actually go there today and see them. Um, they're, they're, the reason they're stone is uh, they, didn't, they didn't absorb ritual impurity. Um, and so stone, even though more expensive, was popular back then. So these are these big stone jars that held 20 to 30 gallons. Now... I want to get, get a sense for the kind of volume of water we're talking about here. So I am going to need, uh, let's say, five volunteers. And before, before you raise your hand, you're going to be lifting something heavy. So please have a healthy back and knees before you volunteer. So five, five hands up. Five brave people. One, two, three, four, five. All right, sweet. Come on up. Come on up here. Do I have a, where, uh, do I have a mic? I don't know where my mic went. Huh. Okay. Why don't you come stand right here for a second? Oh, there's Kathy. Sweet. All right. Will you, wait, why don't you introduce yourselves to the congregation here? I'm Jake Knuckles. Kurt Swanson. Maria Housel. BJ McMillan. Tom Nelson. All right. Thank you. Now, um, you are you're very brave. You have no idea what I'm going to ask you to do. And they just up here. I could, yeah, that is very brave of you. Yeah, thank you. I could ask you to do anything. I'm glad you trust me. Okay, so this is, this is what we're going to, I want to give us a sense for the volume of water we're talking about. Now, behind that wall, that ramp, are 31 five-gallon buckets full of water. Now, uh, so if, if there were six of these jars, that, and each one held 120 or 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking of a total volume of 120 to 180 gallons. So we're going to kind of go halfway in between 155 gallons of water and just give people a sense of what we're talking about here. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep talking, and I need you five to grab the buckets and put them around on stage and then up front here all the way over to the cross. Can you be doing that? Yeah, and oh, and one rule, Carlos said no spilling the water on the electronics. So that's just kind of a... I thought that was a legitimate request. I don't know. Yeah. You good? Any questions? Cool. Thank you. Go. All right. Thank you, volunteers. Give them a hand. All right. 
Good work. Yeah, look at this. Yeah, they're, yeah, 40, 50 pounds each, I think. Something like that. Well done. Okay, so continuing on the story as we kind of see this going on. Uh, this is what happens next. So verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Verse 8. Then he told them, now take some of it and take it to the master of the banquet. Now at this point, he says, take some and take it to the master of the banquet. We, it, he hasn't said that it's changed or anything's happened to the water. At this point, for all we know, it's still water, which I think is kind of funny. You just, I just picture the servants. Jesus says, take some of the water to the master of the banquet. And they're like, okay. They go to the master of the banquet and say, the rabbi wants you to taste this water. I, you know, they're, but at somewhere along the line, something happens. Listen to this. Verse 9, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus does not make the kind of wine that comes out of a cardboard box. <laughs> Jesus makes the kind of wine, when I'm at the restaurant, I just hold the menu up and point to it because I'm embarrassed to try and pronounce it. Jesus makes top shelf wine. He says, I am the true Lord of the feast. I am the true joy bringer. And I am here with you now. And do you, what do you think Jesus did next? Do you think he then sat in the corner and leaned back and he's like, I'm going to pay attention to who has a little too much fun here. Do you think that's what he did? Oh, good work. Well done. No. My guess is he grabbed a mug and went and grabbed the karaoke mic and he, enjoy he jumped into the celebration. He is the joy bringer, the true Lord of the feast. And this is... Um, this is how the author summarizes, kind of pulls the story together after this has taken place. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's saying uh, that... This, this action, this miracle, it, it, was a, it was a sign. That means it points to something bigger than itself. What we've been talking about this whole time, that, that a feast was an image of what God intended to do to the entire universe at the end of time. And so this miracle that Jesus did, it points ahead. It points to something bigger than just this one-time event. And it points to, namely, his glory. And glory, we shouldn't just think like shiny glowiness. Glory is about his true character, the deepest essence of who he is. This is a sign pointing to who Jesus is. As Jesus says, yes, I am the joy bringer. Yes, that, you're, that your joy in this world has true meaning, has true significance. That it points ahead to what Jesus intends to do into the entire universe. Jesus says to his people, yes, you believe that God is going to bring this feast 
to all people who trust him and throughout the entire universe. And Jesus says, I am he walking among you. Yes, you're dancing with your daughter. You're laughing with your friends. Your wedding feast moments, they point towards something bigger. Something you are made for joy, Jesus says. And you are made for a kind of joy that you are just now tasting. And I desire to fill you with it. And at the end of history, I will, all those who trust me, I will fill you and fill this entire cosmos. I am the joy bringer, Jesus says. Yes, your joy has true meaning. And yes, your sorrow also has meaning. Your sorrow is real. Jesus says, yes, I recognize that sorrow and death and evil, they do not belong in this reality. They are invaders. They are intruders. They're not, they not just uh, the way things are and we need to get used to it. Jesus says, yes, I recognize that death itself needs to be swallowed up. And I have come to do it. I've come to swallow death. I've come to swallow evil. I've come to swallow sin. I've come to take them to the grave and leave them there. So one day you will be free of them. I am he, Jesus says. And Jesus says, this is not these realities. In fact, your life is not just a mere waiting game, holding on until one day when you get there. Jesus says, guess what? He says, where I am? The party has already started. I am the joy bringer even here and now. And, and this image of these, these, these stone jars, um, these stone jars are just ordinary, everyday implements in that day and time. Just an average part of life. Jesus says, I want to take your ordinary, your everyday, your mundane, and I want to fill it. I want to fill it with my joy. When I am there, my joy fills things up. I want to take it and fill it. And I want it to be, I want to be an appetizer for the meal to come. I want to, I want to end uh, with a question. The question is this. Where are you in this story? What character do you find yourself identifying with in this story? What part, what part of the story do you find your heart gravitating towards? Maybe, maybe you find yourself identifying with Mary. Maybe, uh, you know, Mary at the beginning of the story, um, she, she sees a, a wedding party running out of wine. Maybe you feel like, maybe you look around the world and you have this sense, you feel the sorrow of the world. You feel our world running out of wine, running out of joy, running out of hope. And you, you have this sense of, isn't anybody going to do something about this? Who is strong enough to do something about the, the lack of joy and hope in this world? Or maybe it's very personal for you. Maybe it feels like the, the personal crisis that it was for those newlyweds. Maybe you have the sense of there is a crisis, there is sorrow, there is pain that's up front and personal. And I need someone strong enough to handle my crisis. Maybe that's who you identify with this morning. Maybe this morning um, you would hear Jesus saying, 
that he is the one who has come to swallow death and evil, to put it away. He is the one big enough to handle your crisis. Maybe today you start trusting him with that. Or maybe you identify with the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet, he, the master of the banquet experienced joy, experienced the good life, tasted the good wine, but didn't realize where it came from. Maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you, are, you, are, you, have, maybe you have a deeply joyful life. There is much to be thankful for. But you've never paused to reflect on, who do I say thank you to? What does this joy point towards? Maybe, maybe this morning you reflect on that. Is, is your joy, is it just evolutionary misfirings? Does your joy have any lasting significance? Might your joy be pointing forward towards something? Might Jesus be wanting to say to you this morning, what you're tasting now, in part, I desire to give you in full. I desire to fill your heart and fill this universe with it. I am the joy bringer. Or maybe this morning, maybe you identify with the disciples at the end of the story. The disciples, it says, it was, this was the first sign, the first time they saw Jesus reveal who he truly was to them. And they decided to put their trust in him. Maybe today you, you feel your heart saying, this is real. I want this. I want to place my trust in this Jesus. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a blind leap of faith. See, the reality is every one of us, every day of our life, is putting our trust somewhere. There's no escape from that. Every one of us lives on faith. We read books. We trust the people who wrote them. We read news articles. We trust the people who said them. We watch news shows. We trust the people who went there. We talk to our friends about what's going on in their life. We trust that they're telling us the truth. We make decisions about how we're going to live, what job we're going to do, how, what classes we're going to take, how we're going to treat people. And we make, choices to, we make choices based on trust on how to live our lives. There's no escape from living a life of trust, of faith. The only question is, who and what do you put your trust in? Maybe today you say, I want to put my trust in Jesus. For the first time, I believe he is the one worthy of my trust. I want to end with this. Uh, Jesus comes. We're asking this question. Who is Jesus? I believe uh, when we look at this account from the wedding of Cana that he gives us an answer. I believe Jesus claims to be the true Lord of the feast, the master of the banquet, the joy bringer. He claims to be the God who is able to, in the end of history, make all the sad things come untrue. I believe Jesus claims that he himself, through his death, will secure this that he is the death swallower, that he will take death and evil and sin into himself in his crucifixion and take it to the grave. I believe Jesus says that he is the joy bringer even here and now, desiring to fill our every day up to the brim with himself. And I believe the question for us is will we trust him? This Advent, in your joys and your sorrows, will you trust him to Jesus? Let's pray.
Jesus, um, I just have an image of, um, I think about uh, what's going on in the lives of the people in this room and the deep, um, deep joy that people are experiencing and the deep hurt and sorrow that people are experiencing. And I feel like that servant carrying a cup of water, that it's so little compared to what's going on in our lives. But Jesus, I believe that you um, can turn that water into life-giving wine. And so may you fill these words. May you fill our hearts. May you speak, Jesus, speak to us even now as we reflect on what has been said, as we reflect on what you did. Speak to my friends' hearts. Give them ears to hear what you want to say to them. Thank you that you are here now. In your name, amen.